Hey, my name's Jeremy, and I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at Shelter Cove. And I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in with us today. I firmly believe you're going to be encouraged, you're going to be inspired, but most of all, that God's going to do something through this message that's going to move you closer to Jesus. Thanks again for tuning in. It's great to see you today. Uh, I'm Scott, one of the pastors here. We're excited to jump back into our study of the book of Ruth. Before we do, hey, I want to say thank you to our guest worship leader this morning, Jason Bear. He's here from the Outer Banks, North Carolina. Didn't he do a great job leading us in worship today? Yeah, hey. Uh, I've enjoyed getting to know Jason. He is the real deal. And as you can tell, the boy's got some chops, right? I mean, he can sing. That's not singing. That was sanging. That's what that was, okay? Hey, be a blessing to him. Visit his product table. It's right out these doors here. And he's got a couple of CDs out there. I know that'd be a blessing to you as well if you pick up one of those. Take your Bibles. And turn to Ruth chapter 2. We started this series last week. Pastor Jeremy got us kicked off in this amazing, amazing little book. And uh, Ruth takes place during a period of time called the time of the judges. It was a time of great uncertainty in the land of Israel. And just to kind of recap a little bit of what we learned last week, we started off by uh, taking a snapshot of of a family in Judah, in Bethlehem, and they head of this family, uh, by the way, if you need a Bible, we've got these people walking around with books, so just raise your hand and, and you'll get a Bible to follow along today. There was a man who was the head of a family in Bethlehem, and this man's name was Elimelech. And last week, as I was walking into the worship center, one of our ladies from our church, who apparently is a big fan of the book of Ruth, she said, oh, Pastor Scott, you need to tell Pastor Jeremy, when he gets to Elimelech, he should go, Elimelech, 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 Elimelech. And I said, you know, I think you should tell Pastor Jeremy that he should do that. Well, clearly neither of us did, so it has fallen to me to get that song stuck in your head today. You're welcome. So let's get back into Ruth here. What did Elimelech do? There was a famine in the land. And so in, a, in an act to preserve himself and his family, He moves them up to a region called Moab. Moab being an area where there is a pagan culture. The Moabites worshipped false gods. Uh, they They were engaged in very deviant behavior. But he goes up there, and while they're there, his two sons marry Moabite girls. They marry into this pagan culture. Also while they're there, Elimelech dies, as do his two sons. They end up dying while the family is in Moab. So who's left? You got his widow by the name of Naomi, and you got her two daughters-in-law, and she is grieving her husband's death. She's mourning her two sons. She says, I I can't handle this. I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go back to my ancestral home, back to Bethlehem. You two girls, go back to your families, go back to your gods. Just let me be. One of her daughters-in-law says, no way. I am bound to you. I am committing my life to you. I will follow you. Where you go, I go. Your God will be my God. And she follows her mother-in-law. And that is the beautiful theme that we see is this fearless faithfulness, this undying loyalty on the part of an outsider, a Moabite, a Gentile, who follows the God 
of her new mother-in-law. And she is brought by God into the plan where God is in relationship with his chosen people and he brings this outsider in to that story. It's a, it's a cool theme in chapter one. We're gonna continue on that theme today as we get into chapter two, but we're also gonna see a new theme emerge. And we'll take a look at that momentarily. For now, will you stand with me for a brief word of prayer before we jump into this? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the power of Scripture. And God, as we read this today, may, may your spirit guide us, illuminate your word for us today, God. I just pray that you'll bless everybody as we read, study this. May we find something applicable uh, that we may see you take charge in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Here's the big theme of Ruth chapter 2. It's this. God's plan. Anybody in here ever get concerned with God's plan? You ever, you ever get, get worried about the plan of God? What's going on? Okay, if you're not raising your hand, you're lying to me right now. We all struggle with God's will. That's probably the biggest struggle that Christians have is the knowing the will of God. Now, we can sort of kind of get on board with some theological components of God's will. We know that there are moral things in, in the Bible that he wants us to do that are clearly in the will of God. It is his will that you be spirit-filled, which means you must be born again. That's obviously his will. He desires that. It's his will that you pray. It's his will that you study the word. It's his will that you share your faith. It's his will that you interact with other Christians and sharpen one another. Uh, all right, all of that's his will. We also could get on board with the notion that God has these divine purposes whereby he will bring to fruition what he wants to do no matter what man does, no matter how evil man's intentions are or what the devil throws at him. God is sovereign and will accomplish his purposes no matter what. That's his will. We can understand that stuff in general. Where we get concerned is the will of God as it pertains to the specifics of our day-to-day -day life. What are you doing in my life, God? How shall I make decisions? How do I know what are the right decisions to make? Uh, uh, where should I live? What job should I take? Sh should I buy that house? Uh, sh who should I marry? Should it be this person, this person? How many kids should we have? Uh, should I change careers? Where should I invest my money? Where do I send my kids to school? And so on and so forth. And sometimes we have a, what we think is a clear trajectory to a specific destination, and we're on that path, and suddenly we got a hard left turn, that life just throws us a curve. We don't know what's going on, and we start to question God. We say, do you, do you, can, I, can you let me in on the plan? Can I know what you're doing? It's not fun not to know what the plan is. You ever been anywhere where you, you just didn't know what the plan was? Hey, what, what are we doing here? What's going on? What's next? What's next? I went on a mission trip a few years ago uh, at another church. I was on staff at a church in San Diego, and uh, we were planning a mission trip to partner with a sister church in Indonesia. And I signed up, and slowly but surely, everybody on this trip just kind of dropped out. They couldn't raise the money. They couldn't uh, get work off. Maybe they didn't like me. I don't know. But I went. I was the only one who went on this trip. I had never been to Indonesia. I landed in Samarang, Java, Indonesia. A guy from the church picked me up at the airport, took me to a house where I stayed for the night. I knew the next morning that I would be going to worship at the, at the church. And it was, by the way, a massive church. Mega, mega, many thousands of people, much larger than here or especially our little church down there. And I knew that there was a, a possibility that they were gonna ask me to sing at the early church service. 
And so I got up, I started warming up, I put on a suit and tie, which by the way, in Indonesia is really hot. I'm sweating through this suit. The guy picks me up. We're fighting our way through traffic. Don't know if you've ever been uh, driving in traffic in a country uh, like Indonesia, but uh, let's just say that the lines on the roads are purely uh, suggestive. They don't mean anything. You know, you just kind of weave where you can and you pray hard. And uh, I was a little unsettled and I'm, I'm just, I just want to get there in one piece and get my bearings and maybe get a sound check. If I'm going to sing, that'd be great. You know, I'm going to play the piano and all this stuff. And I just want to get there and, and get ready. And I asked the guy, I say, hey, what, what time does the service start? And he goes, it has already begun. <laughs> what now? It, it's already begun. Real, the service is, it's already started. Yes. Good to know. Okay, great. All right, let's get our head around that. We finally get there. We park. We go in, and they are cranking in worship, and they are crazy worshipers, man. They're awesome, and they're singing their guts out. They got their hands raised, and I go to the front row. I'm sitting right there, standing rather, and I'm, I'm singing my guts out. I don't know what I'm saying because it's not in English, but whatever. They all, the song ends. Everybody sits down. I sit down, and my little friend turns to me, and he goes, you are now required to sing. There are thousands of people in here, and it's dead silent. I go, right now? Yes. Okay, okay. Uh, do I play that keyboard right there? Yes. Okay, okay. So I go up there. I'm like, come on, God, help me out. I get on the mic. It feeds back a little. I'm like, sup? How y'all doing? Good? Okay, great. And I start the song. I get through the song. They're appreciative. They liked it. Whatever. I come down, and I'm like, thank you, Lord, for getting me through that. And I'm about to sit down. The guy says, will you please come with me? I'm like, where are we going? Did I offend him already? What? What's happening? So we leave. We get on an elevator. We go up to the sixth floor. I don't know where we're going. I go, so where, where are we going? He goes, we are going to the young adult service. I go, oh. Young adult service. All right, cool. That's great. And uh, before the doors open, he goes, Pastor Scott, you will now speak. <laughs> What's that now? <laughs> you want me to teach? Yes. Okay. All right. Always be ready, right? So the doors open. There are hundreds of young adults looking at me. Like that, you know, I come in, they start their worship. I'm going through my Bible going, give me a word, God, give me a word. Just one, you know, I didn't have a plan. Have you ever been in a situation where you didn't have the plan? We want to know the plan. Well, here's the thought at the beginning of our study today. Big overarching thought in your notes. God's plan is not a destination. It's a path on which we are led Every day. God's plan is not something that you arrive at, that you discover, a destination. It is the attitude of your heart as God is leading you on what can sometimes be a very winding, very Lombard Street style path. And you need to be focused not on where you will end up, but on the condition, the attitude of your heart as God is leading you along because it's the journey that matters. His plan is the journey that is unfolding as he is shaping you, molding you, preparing you, making you in his image. That's the plan of God. And so we need 
this attitude. And this attitude is modeled beautifully in the life of this faithful young woman by the name of Ruth. And in the spirit of a faithful young woman, I just want to let the young ladies in here, if you're in junior high, uh, through high school, or if you have a daughter, or you know someone in that age bracket, there's going to be a conference in here on Friday night, the Anchored Conference. It's for young ladies. It's for junior high through high school. Uh, you can visit our kiosk out there. The high school kiosk can give you more information about that. Jamie Grace, Christian artist, going to be here Friday night. So worth your time to check that out. But let's look at the life of Ruth. And I'm going to show you here from her example five priorities when seeking God's will. Now, I'm not usually a five steps to whatever type of guy. That's a little too Osteen for me. I, I, I'm a little different, but I will say that these five steps really just fall out of the text. And more than that, they work. And so I want you to see them. Five priorities. Number one, look at verse one in Ruth two. It says, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. You just heard the song in your head, didn't you? That's right. <laughs> Whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Now, here's your first priority, okay? And it's evidenced in the life of Ruth. When seeking God's will, number one, be faithful where you are right now. Be faithful where you are right now. We're always concerned with what's out there. God wants us to be concerned with right now, be faithful where you are. I want you to see about Ruth before she goes to seek guidance in an area that she cannot know in the future, that she cannot control. She has determined to be faithful in an area that she can know, that she can uh, be aware of and control right here, right now in her present. Notice she says to Naomi, let me go. In the original Hebrew, there's a connotation of asking permission right there. Why is she asking permission? She is being polite and respectful to Naomi because Naomi is her spiritual authority. We've already seen in chapter one, Ruth says to Naomi, your God will be my God. And at that moment, God placed one spiritual authority in her life other than himself, and it was in the person of her mother-in-law. Ruth followed the God of Naomi, and so Naomi was her, her present spiritual authority. She was submissive and respectful to that spiritual authority. And in the Old Testament, this is the essence of holiness. It's to be, it's to be respectful of those in authority over you. And of course, we all have God as our ultimate authority, but sometimes God places authority figures in our life and he asks us to honor them. And that is precisely the attitude that Ruth is espousing right here. And she has a goal. She wants to go and to seek favor, but she is rooted in these spiritual disciplines that are newly in place in her life, and she's honoring those. Do you have spiritual disciplines in your life? What ought we to be disciplined in spiritually? God wants us to spend time in prayer. God wants us to spend time in his word. He wants us to, to devote time for worship. He wants us not to forsake the assembly. He wants us to be in community with other believers so that we may grow and be sharpened and, and become more and more like Jesus. These are the disciplines of the Christian life. Good stewardship of our money. Honoring, giving back to God what belongs to him. You want guidance in life? You gotta be faithful. You gotta pay attention to these areas of spiritual responsibility in your present as you look toward your future. All right? 
And so what do you want to do? You know, these disciplines help us with determining the will of God. Did you know that? We get all hung up. What does God want for my life? What does he want for my life? What should I do? You know what? I would point you to the Proverbs. I'd say, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Are you delighting in the Lord? Meaning, are you pursuing these spiritual areas that matter to God? If you are, then that means you are beginning to be like Jesus Christ and you are beginning to want what he wants. So what do you want to do with your life? If you're tending to these spiritual areas, God's will begins to be manifested in your desires. We complicate the will of God in so many ways and we ought to simplify it by doing this. Your sub point here is this. In your notes, emphasize obedience rather than the experience. We want the experience. God, give me this, this thing, this thing that I want to experience. God says, you're concerned with the experience. I'm concerned with your obedience. Just be faithful to me. I'll take care of that. You take care of this. I work with young people here at the church, and often they come to me and they have some kind of spiritual enterprise that they want to embark on. They come, they say, Pastor Scott, I think I, I, think I want to be a missionary. Really? Well, that's great. And I encourage them in that. What do, you, what do you think you want? Well, I'm thinking I'll join YWAM or Campus Crusade or something like that. Okay, wow, that's a, you know, that is a great calling. That's a very noble thing. Let me ask you a few questions. What's your prayer life like? Who, who have you shared your faith with over the last six months? Have you won anybody to Christ? What, tell, me about, tell me about the spiritual mentors in your life. Tell me about those relationships. What, what book of the Bible are you currently studying right now? What are, you, what are you getting out of that? If none of that is being addressed presently, you're going to be a mess on the mission field. I don't care what you think you're going to do that's great for God if you're not addressing spiritual disciplines in your life right now. And so we see Ruth model this for us, and these are great priorities as we seek the plan of God. But after she has purposed to humble herself and to be honorable, does she just rest on her laurels? No, look at verse three. It says, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Here's your second priority in your notes. It's this. After you have uh, decided to be faithful where you are right now, number two, do the work you can do. Do all the work that you can do. We just talked about spiritual things. Now we're going to talk about practical things. We're talking about developing a strong work ethic. What's your work ethic like? What does Ruth want to do? She's going to go and glean in the field. You know what gleaning is? Gleaning in Ruth's day was a form of welfare, but it's not a, it's not a handout. It ain't a freebie, okay? It's very hard, difficult work. The gleaners are the needy people who would be permitted to come to the field, and the, man, the master, he would have his workers do a first pass, a first harvest on that field, and after they did that, behind the reapers, here comes the, the gleaners, the needy, and they would be allowed to come in and take what was left unharvested or whatever was left on the ground that hadn't been picked up, and they would have to bend down and they'd have to stoop through the, the dross and the chaff and whatever and find what was salvageable, and they could use that, they could keep that, but it was very very difficult work and it was demeaning and one had to humble themselves and put in long hours to get the maximum benefit out of it. It was difficult. It was sweaty. It was arduous. 
and she's going to go and glean. And this, I believe, is a great habit to develop. I think, I think all young people, when they leave mom and dad's house and they strike out on their own, I feel bad for the ones who have grown up with you know, a silver spoon in their mouth. They've had everything handed to them. Because what they really need, the best thing for them, is to become a gleaner, to become like Ruth. They won't regret going out and finding the value of an honest, hard day's work. Best year uh, in my upbringing happened between my first year of college and my second year of college. I went my freshman year to a school in Arkansas. I had a small scholarship. Uh, I also had a, a loan and a grant and a work study. It still wasn't enough. I ran out of money at the end of the year, had to come home, couldn't go back my second year, didn't know when I was going to be able to go back. We didn't have that much money as a family. And I was bummed. I sat there and I, 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 was, I was heartbroken because all of my dreams, my ambitions involved going to college. All of my friends were away at school and here I was and it just, it was disappointing to me. Did I just sit there and mope and just sit on my blessed assurance? No. You know what? I had an example in my life in the form of my father and I had seen him be a hard worker. My dad was a pastor of a small church. Now he didn't have a big salary but there were four of us kids in the house and he knew when I was in high school to make ends meet, to make sure we had what we needed, sometimes he had to go out and get a little side hustle. And my dad, Pastor Rob Grimm, was also our neighborhood paper boy at, in his late 40s, early 50s. You know why? Because he did what he had to do to make sure that we had what we needed. He lowered himself and he never complained. He sucked it up and he did it. And I had that model for me. And so in this situation, not able to go back to college, I, I got a job. I went out, I got a job. I got a job at a warehouse because it was the most lucrative opportunity I could find for my level of, of uh, ability. And I worked at this warehouse. It was manual labor. It was hard. It was hot in that warehouse. And it was monotonous. And I packed boxes and I stuffed them with paper and taped them up and they had heavy stuff inside. And I had to lift these boxes, put them on a conveyor belt, one after the other. And it was very strenuous work. And I was not then the tall, strapping, muscular specimen I am now. <laughs> what are you laughing at? I almost said it with a straight face, didn't I? What did I think about every day, all day at that job? When can I get out of here? But you know what? Over time, I so valued being in that environment. First of all, it was honest work. It was good work. God taught me the value of that. He taught me discipline. He taught me humility. He taught me a good work ethic. He taught me how to get back under authority as I lived in my parents' house again. He taught me to have a prayer life. He taught me to spend time in his word as I did on my lunch break at the warehouse. God taught me so much. And too many times there, there are people who get frustrated with their situation and they feel it's unjust, it's unfair, and they sit and they complain. And you could go away and come back years later and you could still find them. There are people who let years waste away because they don't like where they are and they think it's not fair. And they haven't ever gotten up and done something productive in the meantime. They're just waiting on God. And we, we just put it all on God. And we just say, very, we get very mystical about it. We say, well, I'm just waiting on God. You know, God, if God wants me to go out there, he'll open the doors. And I will just, I'll just sit and I'll wait. This is me being faithful. I'm gonna wait on God. And little do they know, God's looking at them going, I'm waiting for you to grow up. I'm waiting for you to humble yourself. Because I'm not a genie, I'm a carpenter. Carpenters work with material, raw wood. Are you ready to become material 
in my hand? Here's your sub point. You need to emphasize the practical rather than the mystical. Emphasize the practical rather than the mystical. As I said, I work with young Christians and they often can get pretty darn mystical. They could stand to use a little more wisdom sometimes, particularly when it comes to getting married. And they fret about being married because they're single and they're getting panicky. And, and they're like, boy, the years are ticking by. Come on, God, come on. Where's Mr. Right? Where's Mrs. Right? Right? And they just, they come to me, Pastor Scott, I just pray for me. I just want to be married. I want to be married. I, wanna, I, I don't want to miss the one. I just want to, I want to meet the one. Let me just save you some time here. There's no one. Okay, that's a myth. You're not going to miss the one. You're not going to be sitting there and then somebody walks by and you get distracted and they go and you miss them and you're hosed. That's not how it works. <laughs> there are many, many types. You need to look for a type. The right type, and there are many that fit within that category of the right type that you can build a life with and in an honorable way that God will bless. And I always tell young people, you want to be married? And they go, yeah. I go, hey, make a list. They go, list? What are you talking about? I go, a list. What is the type of person that you want to be with? Make a list of the characteristics, the non-negotiables for you, what matters to you. And at the top of that list, write, born again, and underline it three times. And don't you compromise on that one. That is a non-negotiable, okay? Because you're going to have trouble if you compromise there. Marry a believer. After that, whatever you want. It's your baby. It's your list. You put whatever you want on there, okay? All right? Uh, has a good job. Sounds reasonable. Can keep a job. Very good. Family-oriented. Okay, great, because if you want babies and they don't, that's a problem. Um, nice in-laws. Love it. Uh, whatever you want. You want to put physical characteristics on that list? Feel free. There's no shame in that. You're not, you're not selfish to do that. If you're attracted to tall, dark, and handsome, put it on the list. If you like short, frail, and hairy, put that on the list. I, it's your list. <laughs> but when the list is done and you've laminated it, now you go to work on you. And you Strive to become the type of person that that type of person is going to want to be with. You want somebody deep and spiritual? You become somebody deep and spiritual. You want somebody hardworking? You become hardworking. You revisit all of those qualities that you can manage in your present and follow God and let him shape you into the type of person that that type of person would want to be with and be practical you want to be married where do christian singles go where can i find them <laughs> there's also a group of young adults that meets upstairs at seven o'clock on wednesdays you know if you're a young person and you're single i think it's a good place to go maybe brush your teeth before you come it's just a good just a good thing this practicality can be applied to anything should i change careers do you want to change careers yeah, I think I do. Okay, how are your spiritual disciplines? Yeah, things are going good. Okay, great, change careers. What's the practical steps you need to take to get from point A to point B? Uh, well, I guess I need to sharpen this aspect of my whatever. Okay, great, does that require college, going back to school? Okay, let's talk about that. Think in those ways, work hard, do the work you can do. Why? So you can claim victory for yourself. Look at how hard I worked, look what I made happen. No, you do this so that you can be ready when God starts to move, and that's your third priority. Be ready for God to move. 
Sometimes it seems like he's taking a long time, but when he moves, it's fast. Look at verse uh, four. She's in the field. She's working. Ruth is. Verse four. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. See what's happening here? Ruth is working away and behold, that word means something suddenly happens. Boaz shows up. This is, this is the beginning of God rocking Ruth's world right here. It happens quickly. God moves quickly and you need to be ready when he decides to move. He may feel like he's taking an eternity and you can get frustrated. Don't quit. Keep faithful. Keep working so that you're ready when he moves because it's his timing. It's his timing. All right? I want you to think about Joseph. The story of Joseph, you probably know it. He was down there with his father, with his 11 brothers. God gave him a dream. He opened his mouth. He shared his dream with his brothers. I don't know how smart that was because he said, all you guys are going to bow down to me. That's what I dreamed. And they didn't like that. Go figure. So they beat him up. They fake his death. They throw him in a pit. They sell him into slavery. Nice brothers. He ends up in Egypt. Does he get bitter? Does he quit? No. He remains faithful. He keeps working hard. God elevates him within the house of his master. He's running the house of, of Potiphar. What does all that faithfulness get, Joseph? Fame and glory? No. He gets accused of sexual assault falsely by Potiphar's wife. He's thrown in prison. Does he get bitter? No. He remains faithful. He continues working hard. God elevates him within the prison. He's basically running the jail. Pharaoh sends two of his uh, subordinates into prison there that he's unhappy with. You got a cupbearer and a baker. They both have dreams. Now, if I'm Joseph, I'm not touching dreams anymore with a 10-foot pole. Look where it got me. And yet he says, dreams? Uh, let me hear your dreams. They tell him his dream. Uh, they tell him their dreams. He interprets both their dreams. He says to the cupbearer, when you get out of here, I don't ask for much, but would you, would you mind remembering me to the Pharaoh? <laughs> What does all of Joseph's faithfulness get him in the prison? The cupbearer gets out, forgets all about him. Forgets all about him, goes about his business. It's not until maybe years later, the Pharaoh has a dream. It's unsettling. He, he's worried. He says, who can interpret my dream? Cupbearer goes, oh, wait a minute. I think I know a guy. You know a guy? Where? <laughs> funny story. Remember when you got mad at me and you threw me in prison? I'm still so sorry about what I did, by the way. Anyway, I met a guy. Genesis tells us that the Pharaoh sent quickly for Joseph, brought him out. They shave him. They dress him. He appears before Pharaoh. He hears Pharaoh's dream. He interprets it. He says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have years of plenty. You're going to have years of famine. The famine is going to wipe you out. Here's what you need to do. Somebody wise needs to be appointed to be in charge of the surplus during the years of plenty so that when famine comes, you're ready and you will thrive in spite of the famine. Pharaoh says, huh, somebody wise. How about you? How about you? God moved and he moved quick because Joseph was in prison languishing in obscurity for 15 plus years. God moves within like 20 minutes. He goes from prisoner to prime minister of Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh. 
That's the timing of God. Subpoint in your notes, you need to emphasize God's timing rather than his tarrying. We focus on how long God is taking. It's his timing. It's not yours. You have one job. Stay faithful so that you're ready when he begins to move. And then the fourth priority that we have, you need to know that your present faithfulness will open future doors. Your present faithfulness will open future doors. I want you to notice what elevates Ruth. God leads Boaz to this field. That's his sovereignty, but look at what really unlocks the the door for Ruth. Verse 5, then Boaz uh, said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, well, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from the early morning until now, except for a short rest. Here's what Boaz heard as the supervisor. He heard that she said, please. That means she's respectful. He heard that she said, let me glean. That means that she's humbled herself. She's, she's lowered herself to do the work. She says, let me gather. That means she's got a hard work ethic. She's a strong worker. And he hears that she continues from the early morning until late at night with hardly any break. That means that, that she's diligent. She's long-suffering. She's in it for the long haul. She's not a quitter. And her work results in a door opening. Because she's remained faithful. She's remained diligent. She hasn't complained. I told you about my warehouse experience. How I worked in that warehouse and what God taught me over that year. One day God moved. He moved in the hearts of my parents. They came to me and they said, son, we're going to send you to uh, Liberty University for college for a weekend. We can't afford to send you for a year. But we want to send you for one of their college for a weekend things. And uh, this is just an act of faith. We don't have money to send you there next year. But would you go and maybe you could find out if there's any opportunities for scholarship or what have you. And so in faith, I went to LU for one weekend. And I met some people from the school and I'm talking with them. And they say, where are you from? I say, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And they go, oh, no kidding. You know, one of our biggest donors is from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I said, really? Who is it? They told me, and do you know, it was the woman who owned the company and the warehouse that I worked in. And this very wealthy lady was a widow, and she had set up a scholarship in honor of her husband. Guess who got that scholarship? It was a young man that she observed as being a loyal hardworking employee over the past year. And I am eternally grateful for that initial opportunity for that door to open up for me. But what if I hadn't been ready? What if it was beneath me to go work at that warehouse? What if I'd said, nah, I'm too good for this? No. What if I'd done nothing but complain? What if I'd fallen down on the job? What if I'd quit? That door would remain closed. And for Ruth, it's her present faithfulness that is honored. Boaz says, now listen, my daughter, verse 8, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels, drink what the young men have drawn. Ruth is overcome. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm, I'm a foreigner? And here's what he says to her. He says, all that you have done 
for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and you came to a people that you did not know before. Her reputation preceded her. And she's being honored for it right here. So here's what you need to do in your notes, your subpoint: emphasize preparation rather than promotion. What is God preparing you for? It may stink, man. I mean, this, is, this may be the bottom of the barrel as far as you're concerned, what you're going through right now. But just open your mind. What is it that God may be preparing me for where I am right here, right now? Because Boaz says in verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And we see some cool symbolism here in the story. Ruth says in verse 13, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. That's exactly what she was looking for. You know, you and I find favor when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. She says, for you have comforted me, spoke kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Ruth is saying, look around. I am different from everybody else here. I'm not a Jew. I'm a Gentile. I'm an outsider. You know who else are Gentiles? Virtually everybody in this room, as far as I can tell. Ruth is a glimpse of you and I, the church. God presented his plan first to Israel, and then the door was open, and he brought us in, and the church exists because of the mercy of God. And we have a beautiful picture of that in the example of Ruth. We also see in Boaz a beautiful picture of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Look what happens at mealtime in verse 14. Boaz said to her, come here, eat some bread, dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers. He passed to her roasted grain. Uh, Boaz is serving the servant. This is what Jesus did in the upper room. He served his disciples. He came to serve not to be served. He lowered himself. He humbled himself. Beautiful pictures. We're going to explore more of those in the weeks to come. But we find this fifth priority now. As you seek God's will, number five, in your notes, trust that God is working out his sovereign plan. Our God is sovereign. Look at verse 18. All right? She took it up. She went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She, she, she'd worked hard. Even after she found favor, she kept working. She didn't stop. She, she, she got an ephah of barley. That's about five days' worth of work. She takes it to her mother-in-law, this hardworking girl, and she brought it out and gave her food she had left over after being satisfied. Ruth was stuffed, couldn't eat another bite. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Here's where God's sovereignty comes in. <laughs> Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And she said, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. You know what a redeemer is? We call Jesus our redeemer. He's redeemed us from our sin. But that is a concept that is rooted in Jewish antiquity. A, a kinsman redeemer in the time of Ruth was a man of a particular clan who was appointed, he had the responsibility to be the one in the family to step in 
Whenever a relative endured hardship or was treated unfairly or if, or if a relative uh, was murdered, uh, the Redeemer would come in and deal with the perpetrator without consequence. Or if there was someone who had, who had become a widow and had lost their property because there was now no male heir, it's the kinsman Redeemer who would step in and redeem that land and restore that property to the widow by right. And that, that concept will be explored more fully next week. Pastor Ed going to take us through that in chapter 3, what a redeemer is in this context. But Boaz was just such a man. And it's the sovereignty of God that brought this about because he brought Ruth to the very field with the very man who would be in a position to help her in the way that God intended. That's the sovereignty of of God. Do you believe that God is sovereign? And if you believe God is sovereign, you couple that with the fact that you know he is faithful. And in your notes, you need to emphasize God's faithfulness rather than your own entitlement. When you know that he is sovereign and you know that he is faithful, you don't focus on what you think you deserve because here's the truth, folks. We don't really deserve anything. Actually, here's what we deserve, if I'm being honest. We deserve to die and go to hell. That's what we deserve. But we have a redeemer who is merciful, who is faithful. And I want you to notice that no matter how hardworking Ruth was, ultimately what mattered is that she came into personal knowledge of the redeemer. And no matter how hardworking you are, and you should be hardworking because that's honoring to God, but no matter what you've done, how you have excelled through life, it all matters not if you don't know the Redeemer. Are you looking for God's guidance today? Here's a better question, and it's the final question we're gonna close with. Do you know, personally know, the God whose guidance you're seeking? I can introduce you to him. His name is Jesus Christ. Would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to hear your voice today through your word. I pray for anyone in this room who is struggling with your plan. May they understand that their plan is unfold, your plan is unfolding around them even now. And how they submit to your lead is how they will know success in your eyes. But God, they will never know success if they don't know you personally, if they have not put your, their faith in Jesus Christ, the true Redeemer, who died on a cross for our sin. And if there are people in this room today who want to embrace that truth and rely on your grace, I pray that they will pray with me right now along these lines in these words, Dear Jesus, I believe that you died for my sin. I believe that you rose again. And God, I can't earn heaven. I can't sustain myself. And so I'm putting my faith in you and what you did for me right now. Will you be my redeemer? Will you be my savior? In Jesus' name, amen.